Bible worm, Bible worm, reading the Bible with Bible worm. Welcome to Bible Worm, getting to the core of the biblical text. I'm Dr. Robert Williamson, professor of religious studies at Hendricks College and the founding pastor of Mercy Community Church in Little Rock. And I'm Dr. Amy Robertson, Director of Lifelong Learning at Congregation Or Hadash in Sandy Springs, Georgia. We're here every week to discuss the biblical text, both as biblical scholars and as people of faith, one Jewish, one Christian. This week we're reading the story of Saul's encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus as told in Acts 9, 1-19a. We reflect on Saul, the Greek-speaking Jew from Tarsus, who is also known as Paul, a Roman citizen from Asia Minor. We talk about how his hybrid identities, both Jew and Roman, may motivate both his persecution of others and ultimately his embrace of difference within the Christian faith. We wrestle with this story as a conversion story, concluding that Paul is ultimately converted not from Judaism to Christianity, but from the way of violence to the way of openness and embrace. And we reflect on the disciple Ananias, who overcomes his fear and suspicion of Saul in order to welcome him as a brother in Christ. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Amy, how are you this week? I'm good. How are you? I am also good. We are headed toward the end of the narrative lectionary season. We're we're past Easter. We're headed into the pre-Pentecost readings. Pre-Pentecost. It is interesting how quickly and also how long... It takes <laughs> to get through a season of a narrative lectionary. It's a funny thing. It is. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, friends. So today we are moving from the Gospel of John, where we have been since like December, since Christmas, basically, to the book of Acts, which is going to lead us into thinking a little bit about the life of Paul. And then we're going to read Philippians here in a couple of weeks. And then we're going to get to Pentecost I think the first week of June or the last week of May, somewhere in there. It's kind of a kind of exciting change of of pace. Yeah, it's um, you know, I tell my um, B'nai Mitzvah students that fear and excitement are just like right up against each other. Yeah. Like whether something's scary or exciting, it just kind of de- <laughs> yeah. depends how the wind blows. And I, I think every time we start a new section of New Testament, I feel a little like. Okay, what's going to be in here? I don't, <laughs> yeah. I don't know what's going to be in here, but yeah. we're going to find out. That's what's going to happen. We're going to That's find what's going to happen. <laughs> the narrative lectionary actually, like the way that it works after Easter is we go to the book of Acts every year, but we go to a different part of the book of Acts and then we end mm. up in a Pauline epistle. And the Pauline epistles, as you know, are quite different from one another. So last year we were in Galatians, which was which was a little rough. Mm -hmm. (laughs) this year we're in philippians which is a beautiful kind of unity and hopefulness and we we love each other the word philippians (laughs) i know don't be scared it reminds me of um what my sisters growing up my little sisters used to call flippy cheese it's like (laughs) those little slices of cheese so every time you say philippians I think of flippy cheese. Flippy cheese. What like the craft singles kind of thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The singles. Oh, you can like you flip, flip open it the little around it like yeah. very floppy. It's really floppy cheese, but they floppy said flippy cheese. cheese. Flippy cheese. I like Philippians. it. Philippians. Yeah. Flippy cheese. Okay, but 
That's that's not a very sacred comment. It is not. <laughs> well, that's okay. It's kind of a funny. Uh, it's kind of a funny mm, title for a biblical book. Kind of a book, weird association. Okay, but we're not there yet. We're, we're not there Acts. yet. We'll be there in a couple of weeks. Right now, mm-hmm. we're in the book of Acts. The book of Acts is, as we talked about last year, the sequel to the Gospel of Luke. Mm-hmm, the author mm-hmm. is the same author that wrote the Gospel of Luke. And so last year, we read Luke, and then we just started reading Acts, and we were sort of in a continuous, you know, two-part yeah. narrative. This year, we're moving from the Gospel of John to the book of Acts, and these two texts don't necessarily know each other. And so it's kind of an interesting sort of, you got, you got to reframe a little bit in your head, like, well, what what is the author of this text assuming about Jesus? And mm. really, you got to... You got to skip back to last year in Luke rather than just sort of picking it up from Acts, which, I mean, I guess you could, you know, you, it depends on how much you care about authorship, I suppose, but it's a little bit of a different kind of jump. It's, it is, I have to admit, it's crazy to hear stated with confidence, like these have the same author. I'm not disagreeing with you by any means, but I just feel like in the world of biblical study, yeah. To have any kind of confidence about yeah. that kind of thing is, um, I mean, we don't even know if two chapters of the same book were written by the same <laughs> That's true. people in the, Hebrew Bi- yeah. in the Hebrew Bible, but so it's cool. Yeah. I like it. I mean, so the book of, the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts both are addressed to someone named Theophilus. Mm. And we don't know for sure who that is. Maybe it's a Roman official. Maybe, you know, Theophilus just means God lover. So it could mm-hmm, just be like mm-hmm. a code name for the Christian mm-hmm. reader. But they're both addressed that way. And the book of Acts says, in the first book, I talked about Jesus. And now in the second book, I'm going to talk about what happened after Jesus. Mm-hmm. And so it's sort of, it's pretty clear that yeah. the, at least the final form of the books is by the same author. There's always questions about sources and redactions and things like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So no, it's, it's a cool. little simplistic, cool. but yeah. I love it. True. I love it. So the book of Acts as a whole traces the life of the early church. It's uh, from it begins with the ascension of Jesus, uh, and then it moves to sort of the so the really of a, early church, <laughs> the really really early church, really yeah. early, very yeah. early church, and then it sort of moves from how did the gospel spread around Jerusalem, and then it then the gospel begins to spread in Judea and Samaria, mm-hmm. uh, which starts to happen in Acts chapter eight, and then the chapter nine where we are today on through the end of the book is how did it get to the ends of the earth? How did it get in the very end of the book of Acts, Paul, who is one of the heroes of the book of Acts, is in Rome waiting for an audience before the emperor. Mm. And so there is a sense of like what Acts is doing is tracing how this little Jesus movement in Jerusalem ended up all the way in Rome. It's a pretty interesting, it's a pretty interesting book. It's sort of a theological history. You know what I mean? Like um, telling you the events, but then thinking about how God uh, that maybe has inspired those events. Do we know anything, and maybe this is too broad of a question to ask generally, so if so, just you know, tell me to put a pin in it. Uh, historicity of this book? Like, ha- how, how historical do we think the things narrated in here are? Yeah, I mean, it's the same question you have with most biblical books, right? Okay. The way that I think about it is it is a theologized history it has some grounding in historical events very clearly, like the places where churches are planted. There actually are churches planted there. We actually have the letters of Paul, who is a character in the book of Acts, and though they match up by and large. Mm. So there is clearly some historical background here. Some places, the historical Paul who writes in his own letters tells us things differently than the book of Acts tells them. 
about who was with him when he made a certain journey or about which churches he did and didn't found, things like that. Whether he went to Jerusalem or not after he has his miraculous encounter with Jesus, which we're reading today. And so it's, it is clear enough that the book of Acts is not simply historically accurate. There are some mm-hmm. places where it's clearly not. Well, either it's not or Paul's writings are not. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm, you tend to trust mm-hmm. Paul because, you know, he lived, <laughs> he lived his own life where the book of Acts is relating something else. So the way I think, of, you know, when we've, when we've read the Gospels, we've sort of talked about the same idea that they're, they're narrating the events, but they have their own kind of agenda and theological perspective. And, you know, the author of the book of Acts is very intent on showing that the Christian movement grew out of the Jewish movement and is connected to it very clearly and sort of is an extension and expansion of it. That's the Gospel mm-hmm. of Luke is interested in that. The book of Acts is interested in that. Paul himself is less interested in that. He, he's making a little bit of a stronger break between Judaism and Christianity. All of that to say, there is some historical background here, but it is not, it's not a history in the way that, you know, we think of history. So we think of it now. Right, 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 right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It was a long answer to a fairly simple question. No, uh, it was not that simple of a question. It's just a short question. (laughs) (laughs) So today we are, this season of the narrative lectionary, we're focused in particular on the character of Paul, whose name originally is Saul. Mm -hmm. It gets changed a little bit later in the book. We're picking up in Acts chapter 9 today in verses 1 through 19. And so we've skipped the first eight chapters of Mm -hmm. the book of Acts, basically. And we're going to come back, actually, to Acts chapter 2 on Pentecost, because that's Mm, the Pentecost The Pentecost text, yeah. Yeah. Basically, what has happened is this character, Paul, was not one of Jesus' followers. He was a Pharisee, still is a Pharisee. Even Even when he becomes a Christian, he still calls himself a Pharisee. He starts out as a persecutor of Christians, as we'll see in this text. Mm-hmm. The first eight chapters of the book are talking about the, the disciples and some new disciples who join the movement and how they spread the gospel. Acts chapter 8, which it comes right before our text today, narrates the martyrdom of Stephen, who is a Greek-speaking Jewish follower of Jesus. Okay. So we, you, know, you might call him a Christian convert, but the question of conversion, I think, is an interesting one. Like, yeah. have they yeah. really given up their Jewish identity or have they not? Yeah. He is stoned to death in uh, Acts chapter, at the end of Acts chapter 7 and the beginning of Acts chapter 8. And we get the notice that there was this guy, Paul, who was, or Saul he's called, who was holding the coats of the people who stoned Stephen. And he looked on approvingly. Mm-hmm. So that's this guy that, that's then going to become the hero of the story originally was uh, one of the persecutors of people like Stephen. Vicious coat holders. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Anything else we want to say by way of introduction or questions we want to ask about the book of Acts before we get into Paul's story? I think that's a pretty, I think that's a pretty good introduction. I mean, there's nothing, and, and you've already told us sort of what, what it seems like we need to know about Saul, Paul, prior to this text. So I think we should jump in. I think so. So the first word here is meanwhile, yeah? And um, this is just saying while the disciples, other disciples were spreading the gospel in Judea and Samaria, Paul was doing the things that we're about to read about. So these things are kind of going on simultaneously. Mm -hmm. 
Meanwhile, Saul was spewing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest seeking letters to the synagogues in Damascus. If he found persons who belonged to the way, whether men or women, these letters would authorize him to take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. During the journey as he approached Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven encircled him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice asking him, Saul, Saul, why are you harassing me? Hmm. All right, Amy, you know, Saul, Paul, has a pretty bad reputation mm-hmm. in his pre-coming-to-Jesus life. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, he's, he is spewing murderous threats and trying to take people to prison in Jerusalem. <laughs> I mean, yeah, my, my translation has he's still breathing threats and murder. Ooh, I love disciple. that translation. Is that the it's NRSV? Like his, yeah, that's the NRSV. Yeah. It's like his very being exudes violence and like the kind of extremism that would make us shudder in our boots. Yeah. He's a, he's, he's got quite a reputation. Yeah. So he's, he is zealous. Zealous. For, yes. <laughs> for his yes, tradition. That's the yeah. word. Yes. Yes. One of the things that we like to do, and especially you like to do, is to try to get in the heads of characters about, you know, not just to say this guy was a bad guy, which, I mean, you shouldn't be breathing breathing murderous threats. True. No. But there is something motivating him, which is probably, you know, from his perspective anyway, is a reasonable motivation. Can you help us get into the head of Saul a little bit about why would he be so intent on persecuting Christians? I mean, I feel like my answer to that question is is a little generic, but maybe it will, I don't know, become more sort of specific in conversation with you. Throughout Jewish history, like at this time, certainly in this text, and also at other periods in history, there have arisen individuals who people claim are the Messiah. Jesus yeah. is not the only one that Jews would say is a false Messiah. Yeah. And it and the havoc that it reaches that it the havoc that it causes within the Jewish community when all of a sudden there's a group of people who become super zealous for some radical change is scary is you know if if you believe deeply that the system of, of worship that is in place is is the God-given, you know, truth. It is absolutely your business to try to prevent that from happening. Now, I'm not condoning breathing murder. Yeah. <laughs> but he should take this very seriously. Like, this is not a, like, live and let live kind of situation. This is the entire relationship, the covenant of Israel to God is at stake in, in the future of, of this, you know, break off group of folks who are saying, yeah. no, no, Jews, you're doing it wrong and we need to all move in this direction. That's an existential threat to his own relationship with God because the Jewish people, you know, function sort of as one in their relationship to yeah. God. So if half the people go off following Jesus, it's a, it's a problem. It's a problem. That's so helpful. And, you know, you see this all the time still when there are sort of new movements that arise within, you know, within Christian traditions or when certain parts of, you know, in my experience, certain parts of the church start to argue for the inclusion of people. It upsets other parts of the church that are more conservative. And 
you know, like they have, like, if you really believe that God is sort of paying attention to what your community is doing and blessing you or punishing you based on the community, which, which is a, I mean, a biblical belief, yeah. then yeah. there is a lot of cause for concern. Yeah. Saul takes this as he needs, it's not entirely clear to me what he's doing when he's right. throwing people in prison. He got a letter from the high priest and he's well, throwing he, men and women in prison. The, so this letter that he, he asked for, I don't even know if he got it, but he, he sought it, was supposed to be a letter saying, I, the high priest, formally ask you, the leader of this little synagogue, to turn over all your Jesus followers. Yeah. That's scary. It's very, it's very scary. Like, it's making me think about, like, you know, way back in the day, McCarthyism or things like that, where this sort of hunt for people who are identified yeah. as being belonging to some sort of a movement who are going to be yes. punished for that. Yeah. Yep. Now, I am assuming, you know, this language about murderous threats and throwing in prison sounds to me like you're going to imprison people, put them on trial for blasphemy. And then maybe there is like the end goal is execution, which we've just seen the execution of Stephen for being mm-hmm. a follower of Jesus. Mm-hmm. I don't think you would just be imprisoning people like for a lifetime in prison, like we sometimes do in our, in our culture. Or maybe you're trying to get people to renounce the way and then you'll let them go, which we've seen that also narrated in the book of Acts. If, if you say Jesus is not the way, then, then we'll let you live. So it's using the threat of death and maybe the actual execution of death as a way of turning people against their, com- their commitments, their beliefs. The way you said that just made me think, you know, again, of all these other times in history where, where religious majorities have done this to yeah. other religious communities, either yeah. within the same community, within the Jewish community, or within the church community, or, you know, I'm thinking in particular of conversos and in Spain and Portugal yeah. who were forced to renounce their Jewish yeah. practices so that the Catholic church would basically let them exist. Yeah. Yeah. This is a tried and true tactic. Yeah. Now that the thinking about the inquisition and yeah, like this is, this is a tactic that has been employed all throughout history and quite a lot by Christians in various points of history against Jews and Muslims and, and other people who have, religious beliefs that are not Christian. So I think that's a super helpful thing for a Christian audience to think. Like, it's, it's easy for us to get in the position of like, oh, Paul, that terrible Jew. Mm-hmm. But it's really not, I mean, that is what's happening in this text, mm-hmm. but it's like, it is not limited to his own personal experience. It is also, we are fully capable of doing these kinds of things and, and indeed have been guilty of doing them throughout our history. Yeah. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about, he's on his way to Damascus. Any thoughts about Damascus? Well, it's, okay, so this is an embarrassing question to have to ask you, but I had written down to ask you, so I'll just ask you. Damascus is outside of Israel? Yeah, it is. I think that's really important. It, it's actually the capital of Syria, both right. now and also in the, in the ancient world, yeah. So he's he's going from Jerusalem into diaspora, That's like exactly into right. sort of outside. So 
I don't know that this question really matters because maybe the the leaders of those synagogues would have willingly submitted to the authority of the high priest. But I don't think the high priest would have had any actual, like, legal authority to call these followers back to Jerusalem. I think that's probably right. Yeah, that's an interesting point, which I hadn't really thought about. Damascus is a major city. It's the capital mm-hmm. of the Greek empire that ruled in that ruled the province of Judea for a long time and the capital of the region and so it's a it's a major city and it's a roman outpost at this point in history and i think you're probably right that in terms of political authority i think the high priest has none but in terms of religious authority the high priest seems able to exercise religious authority over jews in damascus but mm-hmm. he doesn't have any like real authority in damascus in a civil sense. Yeah. Once again, there's all these, I don't know, we saw it in John. And then, you know, you just told us that uh, Stephen was just executed by the religious authorities, all these sort of interweavings of like legal authority and religious authority and who can actually enforce different things and power. I mean, it's all about that sort of power juggling. One of the things that's also at work here, I mean, it might be at work, I don't know for sure, but there is a tension in early Judaism and also in early Christianity between Jews from the land mm. and diaspora Jews. Mm-hmm. And so Jerusalem is like, we're Aramaic speaking, we read Hebrew, we're from Judea, and then mm-hmm. diaspora are Jews all around the Mediterranean world. And so Jerusalem is this, obviously the seat of the Jewish homeland. Damascus is an important city in diaspora Judaism. Paul himself, we're going to find out, is from Tarsus, which is in Turkey. So he's a diaspora mm-hmm. Jew mm-hmm. who is acting on behalf of the Jerusalem authority in order to persecute other people in the, in the diaspora. And you just start to open up this kind of interesting thing about sort of ethnic tension and like... Are you really like, does, is Paul like defending his like, I'm really, really committed. I'm, even though I'm not mm-hmm. from Jerusalem, like mm-hmm. you people in Jerusalem can trust me because like sometimes I read his overzealousness as like guarding mm-hmm. against people maybe dismissing him as being not really from the Jewish homeland. I don't know if there's anything to that, but so you try to get into his character a little bit. Yeah, no, that's very interesting part of his, his background and his story. I just was, I was thinking too, as you were talking, like it's so, it, it's kind of bizarre, like this diaspora Jew coming to Jerusalem, the high priest, and like seeking permission from the highest authority yeah. to, you know, pursue this little project that he has yeah. in mind. It's like, I don't, it doesn't, it, I, I don't know what to say about it. It just seems um, like he's this like sort of rogue force. Yeah. Like going to take it upon himself to in, to make things the way he thinks they need to be, yeah. and I don't know. Like this, sto- that's really helpful. This story would, would read very differently if the chief priest had gone to yes. Saul and said, "Can you do this for me?" Yes, but that's not what happened. The chief priest, as far as we know, wasn't actually that interested. But yeah. Saul started this thing and came and yeah. got got the authority to back up his project. That's I don't quite know what to do with that either. But that's really interesting to me. Yeah. So that. Yeah, a zealot who gets the backing of the official authority, which would not itself have necessarily been so zealous. Yeah, right. 
takes it upon himself. Mm -hmm. This conversation is reminding me a little bit of a conversation we had in the fall about Elijah. Do you remember this conversation? Elijah had just had that big show where he Mm -hmm. called down fire from heaven and then he had taken all the prophets of Baal and Asherah and Mm -hmm. had them executed. And then he flees Mm -hmm. to flees to Sinai or Chorev in that text, I think it is. And God says, look, you're too far into this thing. And so I'm going to relieve you of your duties and you need to Mm -hmm. anoint Elisha and the king of Aram, I think it was. It's just, I just remember us that conversation in that text where we talked about Elijah, like maybe sort of over actively being zealous in defense of his tradition and God kind of giving him a timeout. Yeah. That's really interesting. That's a really interesting story to hold as a conversation partner to this, to this one. I don't know where it goes yet, but let's hang on to it. And maybe, maybe if it will come back to it, if it connects anywhere. Good. So then Saul sees, so this is a very much an aside, but you're going to hear me going back between Saul and Paul, mm-hmm, which is mm-hmm. probably confusing if, if you're not familiar with these texts. Saul is the name that Paul goes by in the first half of the book of Acts, and then his name becomes Paul in the second half of the book of Acts. When I was growing up, I was taught that in this story that we're reading today, Saul had a conversion experience and his name was changed. But that's not, at all, that's not actually how it happens. His, at the end of today's story, he's still going to be called Saul. And there is a verse in chapter 13, verse 9, where the author says, Empowered by the Holy Spirit, Saul, who was also known as Paul, glared at, you know, and then it goes on. And so it's, it's just like he had, he had two names. And in fact, yeah. Saul is and they sort rhymed. of, they did. <laughs> Saul is the Aramaic form and Paul is the Greek form. And so when the, Shaul is his name, right? And then yeah. Paul, yeah. Paulos is the Greek form. And so it's just simply that when the story shifts from a focus on Judea and Jerusalem to a focus on the Roman world, they just call him by the other name. That's, that's so interesting. That's so interesting. I also have an important aside about the name Saul. Yeah. I wanted to name my son Saul. I didn't know that. And my husband said no. (laughs) He didn't (laughs) like the name Saul. And Saul, to be fair, in the Jewish tradition is like kind of a a super bizarre character. I don't know if you'd really want to emulate many of his characteristics. But one of my challenges when I was advocating for this name was that there's no good nicknames for Saul. I mean, you wind up with like Paul. That's not a nickname. That's just another name. (laughs) Yeah. So I told one of my sisters from New York that there's no nickname for Saul. And she was like, sure there is. And you have to imagine this with a good New York accent. Chainsaw. (laughs) Chainsaw. Chainsaw. So that's who we're meeting here. Chainsaw, who breathes threats and murder. I love that. Chainsaw. I'm going to totally start using that now. I love that. Mm -hmm. I said all of that just to say I'm probably going to switch back and forth between Saul and Paul and it's probably going to be annoying, but it's just, that's just the way it goes. I try to call him Saul until his name changes, but I really know him as Paul deep in my heart. And so that's what's happening. (laughs) So Saul is on his way to Damascus to round up people in the synagogues and he sees this light and the voice says, Mm. Saul, Saul, why are you... My translation is harassing me. What's NRSV? Why do you persecute me? Yeah. Of course, we're going to go ahead and in a minute and get the rest of that story. But that's such an interesting, like, sudden interruption mm. into what's happening. Mm. Anything you make yeah. about that encounter? 
My gosh. So it's so many things. One of them is, gosh. Okay. So he sees some kind of light, right? Yeah. And it is, whatever happens is impressive enough that he falls to the ground. Yeah. Just based on the light. Yeah. Before he has any kind of auditory experience. Yeah. And then one thing that stood out to me was that the voice calls his name twice. Yes. Which I think of as, I'm, I'm trying to get your attention. Yeah. But it seems like they already have his attention. He already yeah. fell to the ground. So then it made me, I was thinking of all the places where God calls someone twice. Yeah. What did you come up with? The ones that came to my mind were the binding of Isaac when yes. Abraham is, needs to like stop, put your sword down. Yeah, he's about <laughs> right? to Not at the beginning of the story, but Isaac. right. He's yeah. about to sacrifice Isaac. And the angel says his name twice. It made me think of the story in 1 Samuel of, of when Samuel himself is a kid and he is like living in the temple with Eli and he is getting, and he's called by God. It's a little bit unclear in the translation, but I, I think his name is called twice. But it's definitely a situation where God's trying to get his attention and he doesn't expect to be called. But maybe the closest parallel, because the, the, the attention has already been captured and then there's the calling of the name twice, is yeah. Moses at the burning bush. Yes. Right? Moses has already stopped to yes. look at the bush. It's not like Moses is on his way and God has to be like, hey, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah. And calls Moses twice. Yeah. I love that, Amy. And, you know, we've, we've read all three of those stories this year. Yeah. It's been a good year. Sometimes I think the narrative lectionary is, uh, like, I don't know, like, they were paying attention to so many details if they were like, oh, yes. look, let's have these stories. Yes. Yes. I don't know if they were or not, but I think maybe, I think maybe they were. But in any case, what you're noticing, I think, is exactly right. I don't quite know what to do with this. Well, I mean, I guess the Samuel story is a call story. So we've got three, we got two call stories, basically. And then I'm so compelled by the Genesis 22, the binding of Isaac story, where he is about to mm. kill the chosen one and God intervenes. And here you've got Saul going to kill people. Yeah. And yeah, spoiler alert, Jesus is, is going to intervene. He's going to intervene. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know, like there's a lot, and you know, that what you were saying about the Moses story and maybe Saul wasn't going to slow down and pay attention to a burning bush. And so God had to like strike him, you know, like, boom, yeah. like stun you with the light. And yeah. then I can call yeah. your name. That's a great word for it. Stun. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Whereas Moses, as you pointed out a couple of times, was sort of inclined to look at the bush and, and ponder. Saul doesn't seem inclined to ponder much of anything. Yeah, He's yeah. not curious. He's not in a no. curious mindset right now. He is. No. Like he is, he has got a destination. He does. <laughs> he is a man with a plan. Yeah. Which reminds you of the Abraham story where he's been it given does. his thing and he's just yes. plowing ahead. And he's just doing it because, because yeah. he believes this is what God requires yeah. of exactly. him. Exactly. Exactly. Mm. hmm I love that connection. The other thing that I noticed in that came up in the Bible Room Collaborative in our last conversation, and it's that Acts tells us that Saul is looking for people who belong to the way. So he's looking for mm-hmm. believers. And then the voice, Jesus says, why are you harassing me? Not why are you harassing my followers? Mm-hmm. Do you make anything of that? 
Oh, gosh. I mean, I, I make of it that it is a question we need to raise up. I mean, it's such a, such a personal statement that's going to be repeated again in the next section that we're going to read. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Yeah. And, you know, I thought of Jesus being persecuted back in John when he was like walking around on earth and being threatened. I guess I would have to extend the thought of his followers being threatened as sort of a direct persecution of Jesus to really, I don't know, I keep going back to the metaphor of like the body of Christ in the church, like that it's really, it is personal and it is how Jesus inhabits the earth now is through his followers. So like, you know, you're cutting off my leg, like you're, you know, it's personal. Yeah. I love that. And I think that's exactly right. That yes, I think the body of Christ is a super helpful metaphor for getting to what's happening. Persecution of a member of the body is a persecution Mm. of Christ himself. Hi, I'm Reverend Joanna Herriter, pastor of Peace Mennonite Church in Lawrence, Kansas. Last year was my first year preaching through the narrative lectionary, and Bible Worm quickly became my first and usually most significant Bible study tool each week. I love the lighthearted yet in-depth textual analysis, and the attention to issues of social justice. Sometimes I just want to take Amy and Bobby's closing thoughts and offer that as my sermon. But I don't, I promise. This year, I decided to support Bible Worm financially and join their Patreon at the basic $4 a month level. If you're one of those responsible preachers who start sermon prep more than five days before the sermon, you can support at a slightly higher level to get early access to the content. Just go to patreon.com slash Podcast. Let's all do our little bit to help Bobby and Amy continue creating this valuable resource. And now back to this week's podcast. Okay, so let's go on and read the follow-up, which you were just talking about. Picking up in verse 5. Saul asked, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are harassing, came the reply. Now get up and enter the city. You will be told what you must do. Those traveling with him stood there speechless. They heard the voice, but saw no one. After they picked Saul up from the ground, he opened his eyes, but he couldn't see. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days, he was blind and neither ate nor drank anything. Okay, so Saul's response is, who are you, Lord? Any thoughts about that as a... As a response? I mean, it made me wonder. I'm not sure this is the right thing to wonder, but here's what I wondered. It made me think back to the exchange between Moses and God at the burning bush. Where Moses doesn't exactly, Moses doesn't ask, who are you? Like God explains pretty upfront who God is, but Moses does ask, who should, (laughs) Who, who should I say is calling? You know, like I, I'm going to yeah. need, I need more information. I need a way to refer to you. But that's mm-hmm. not quite, I don't think that's quite what's happening here. What do you think is happening here? What do you think Saul already understands? Yeah. And when he says Lord, does he just mean like the respectful term? Yeah. As opposed to like a, a deity? Yeah, the word Lord there can, it's exact, you're exactly right. It can f- be just like a normal thing you say to somebody who is your superior, right? Mm-hmm. So you recognize that somebody just had the power to knock me down and blind me. And <laughs> so like, I would call you Lord just because like, <laughs> what else am I going to call good. you? Yeah. yeah, it's just like saying sir to somebody. 
Yeah. Um, or it can be a reference, like it's the word that's used in the Hebrew scripture, in the Greek form of the Hebrew scripture for the divine name. And so, yeah. you know, I like to think, you know, I think what Saul is saying, I think, is like, who are you? Like, I think he is utterly confused. Yeah. And at the yeah. same time, he is also confessing what is true based on Exodus 3. He just doesn't, mm. he just doesn't know he that doesn't that's know what he's it. saying. Jesus then says, I'm Jesus who you're persecuting. And then he says, get up and go to the city and you will be told what to do. That's sort of like go and I'll give you more instructions later. Seems very familiar to me. You thinking of Abraham? I think I'm, I think so. I was wondering what connections you were going to make there. You know, it's interesting. I didn't recognize it here reading it. I recognized it later on. We get get up and go. Yeah. Spoken to Ananias. Yeah. And that for me really, you know, resonated with the lech lecha, like in Hebrew, get up and go. But you're right. This instruction to get up and get up and go to the city and you'll find out more information later does sound a lot like the calling of... Uh, he at that time in the text, he's Avram, not Abraham. Yeah, in Genesis twelve is where you're. Yeah, where you are. Yep, yeah, yep, yep. I think that sounds right. It's so it's connecting Paul in some way, Saul, with this, you know, the founding figure of Judaism. Yeah, and you know, both this connection to Moses potentially and this connection to Avram are making me think back to that that point you raised before about sort of where Saul sits within the Jewish community and where he sits in relation to the, you know, the the community of Jesus followers and how, you know, Moses is is not really is so, is sort of born into the community he would lead but sort of not cuz yeah. he's raised outside the community yeah, so he's yeah. you know it's like kind of complicated and then same with Avram like he he has to leave where he has come from in order to like help lead this this new people that of course he's related to. I mean, they're all his descendants, but there's there's some I don't know. There's some sort of tenuous relationship to the community before and the community after. Yeah. It's complicated. I like that. Yeah, I have not made that connection for before. I'm gonna have to think about that a little bit, but I think I'm that's not sure exactly what to right. do with it. Yeah, they're sure. all key figures, but also somewhat marginal. Mm-hmm. So he goes into Damascus and we get the notice in verse nine for three days, he was blind and neither ate nor drank anything. Mm. That feels important to me. I don't know quite how to identify its importance. What did you do with that? I had two thoughts. One was, you know, again, I really climbed into this Moses comparison. I'm not sure exactly why, but I was thinking of, you know, the way that Moses's face is so radiant after he encounters God that he has to wear a veil because people Mm. can't look at him. You know, that this, that, that humans aren't equipped to handle this kind of encounter with holiness very well. And and Moses kind of can, but the, the fact that you would just lose sight completely doesn't seem beyond the pale. Yeah. To me. And then isn't there a story, too, of is it that John the Baptist's father in the gospel who encounters angels in the temple? Yeah. And is, like, mute for a That's year a or connection. something like yeah. that? For his whole, for the whole pregnancy, yeah. The whole pregnancy, yeah. There, this sense that, like, people are stunned. Like, yeah. that, that 
this kind of close encounter with God is uh, overwhelms our systems completely. And then the, the last thing it made me think, maybe, I don't know if it's because it was, well, I don't know why it is, but not eating or drinking for three days and not being able to see is kind of like, it, like a, like a death like state. Yeah. Like, like a total system shutdown. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. I don't know if there's like some kind of death and rebirth imagery sort of coming up in here, but. Yeah. I mean, I think I, I love all of those connections. And to me, when you've just, if you're reading Luke and Acts kind of in sequence, or when you're reading this two weeks after Easter, like we're doing, mm-hmm. then that sort of Jesus was in the tomb for three days. Mm-hmm. And then here is Saul being blind and not eating or drinking for three days. I think you, you can't help but sort of think about those together, I think. So there is some yeah. kind of death and rebirth experience that's happening here. The, the death of the old Saul, and then we're going to get narrated here in a minute, the birth of the new Saul, resurrected to a different way of being. Like I, I, think, mm-hmm. I think that imagery is right there sort of waiting for us. It also reminds me of the story of Jonah, where he's running away, like he's, do, he's running away from what he's supposed to do. And then he gets swallowed by the fish and he's in there for mm-hmm. three days. And then he's yeah. sort of spewed up and then has another, like then the story probably departs a little bit after that. But yeah, I mean, but he does, Saul's going to go and get a whole bunch of people to convert who, you know, maybe weren't supposed to or something. I don't know. But that's yeah. sort of like the, the sort of radical reconstrual of what one's mission is with that yeah. three day break in the middle in which yeah. one is not able to see or do anything. Reminds yeah. me a lot of Jonah as well. Yeah. No, I, I like that a lot. Yeah. Full stop. So the narrative makes an, uh, like a really nice move. I love the way that Acts is written because it's given us this sort of scene and then it's going to just, while he's blind and not eating or drinking, we're just going to make a scene <laughs> shift and we're going to like develop right. this, another story yeah. <laughs> and then they're going to come back together. So yeah. we're going to get the story of another disciple named Ananias beginning in verse 10. In Damascus, there was a certain disciple named Ananias. The Lord spoke to him in a vision. Ananias, he answered, yes, Lord. The Lord instructed him, go to Judas's house on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias enter and put his hands on him to restore his sight. Ananias countered, Lord, I have heard many reports about this man. People say he has done horrible things to your holy people in Jerusalem. He's here with authority from the chief priest to arrest everyone who calls on your name. The Lord replied, Go, this man is the agent I have chosen to carry my name before Gentiles, kings, and Israelites. I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So the first thing is I'm kind of struck by this, like the Lord showing up and saying Ananias and him saying, Yes, Lord, reminds you a little bit of what just happened with Saul, but not the Mm -hmm. same. Mm-hmm. How do you connect that this encounter to the other encounters we've been talking about? Mm, that's such a good question. I mean, my first thought, my first two thoughts. One is, you know, I know this is not in Hebrew, so we don't have the Hineni response, yeah. you know, in that word here. But this here I am response to God when God calls is or or to with someone else you have like a really deep and you know full relationship 
I feel like that's not available for Saul yet. Like Saul yeah. doesn't have this deep connection to Jesus who is speaking to him. And so yeah. couldn't answer, here I am. You know, he has to say, who are you? <laughs> yeah, that's right. And Ananias seems to have a very different relationship to to God. It's interesting. It's a little interesting to me here that here it says the Lord said to him, and before it was Jesus specifically who is speaking. Yeah. I don't know if those are interchangeable terms at this point in the text or Yeah, or I kind of read them as interchangeable, but it is interesting yeah. the shift the, the shift of language there and the the connection that shift to Lord makes to the God of the Hebrew scriptures in a way that the name Jesus doesn't exactly yeah. make. You were talking about Hineni and the Greek that's used there he, or used here Edu is actually the way that the Septuagint translates Hineni. So this is, mm-hmm. he says, This is Hineni. Yeah. Edu ego courier. Here I am, Lord. It's exactly, you know, when you translate the Hebrew scripture into Greek, this is what people say. Yeah. So that radical presence, mm-hmm. he understands who he's talking to. As happens with many people in the Hebrew scriptures, Ananias then gets a charge, which he does not <laughs> appreciate having received. Like, go do this thing for this guy. Ananias is like, eh, I'm not sure I really want to do that. What, what do you make of Ananias's response when he's instructed to go and minister to Saul? That's such a good question. And I had, it hadn't even really occurred to me that it is a little, especially since he's just answered, like he knows it's God speaking to him. Yeah. He has answered in that sort of state of radical presence, but but he still, he doesn't say he won't go. He doesn't, but you're he right. he just says, I've heard some really <laughs> bad things about this yeah. guy. <laughs> like, are either, and I don't know if that implies, like, I'm afraid to go, or are you sure this is a good approach? Yeah. Like, maybe there's someone else you want to go through? Which yeah. seems pretty chutzpahdik here, although, you know, there are many places in the Hebrew Bible where, these these people with deep relationship to God do persuade God to, you know, change path yeah. a little bit or I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what to make of it. What do you think about it? I mean, it's, a, it's interesting because I read this as an objection. Yeah. But I think the objection could have multiple fronts. And so I like the what, what you've done there to say, you know, maybe he's afraid to go. Like, Am I really going to go like what this guy is doing is rounding up Christians and sending them murderously to Jerusalem. And you're asking me to go like help this guy. I can also read it a little bit as like this guy has been really terrible to people that I care about. He was coming to try to kill me. And like, I just, I refuse to do that. Like I can't believe that he could be anything other than that. And then the, I like where you, what you added to my way of thinking there too about are you sure this is the right guy, right? Like, couldn't you think of somebody better <laughs> to do your thing? I very much read it as an objection. I, I think partly because I'm informed by the prophetic call stories of the Hebrew scriptures, yeah. Yeah. where every good prophet objects to whatever they've been asked to do the first time. Yeah, true story, true story. Which I find really interesting. And you you still hear that among call stories, people, sh- like just people you know today. when. When you're in seminary, they always ask your call story. And like most everyone's call story has some version of God showed up, told me that I should be a minister. And I was like, nope. (laughs) You know, there's always that sort of like it still continues. Yeah. 
I like thinking about Ananias's motivations and, and maybe we can come back to that a little bit. Like what's this, this guy doing? Jesus says, no, seriously, go. This is the, this is the guy I've chosen. And he gives us, I've chosen to carry my name before Gentiles, Kings, and Israelites. I'm just curious. I mean, this is, it's totally a speculative question, but why, why do you think this guy is the right guy? And do you make anything of that threefold Gentiles, Kings, Israelites? Well, and the order of them too, you know, this guy is a Jew. He's a super crazy, zealous Jew. Yeah. Why would you start by saying he will bring my name before Gentiles? Yeah. I think that's a great question. I mean, I think we have talked before about, you know, the, but again, we've talked about it in terms of why he would be a compelling representative to Jews because he was once so sort of over the top zealous for that cause. Yeah. You know, to so to sort of hear the way that his thinking has changed could be really persuasive to them. Well, but I don't know why his story would be particularly persuasive to Gentiles and kings. That's interesting because to me, I like it's easier for me to understand why he would be compelling to Gentiles because there's something really powerful about someone who used to hold the opposite worldview of you mm. who has suddenly come to embrace your worldview. You know what I mean? Like who used to think that the spread of the gospel to Gentiles was anathema or used to think that Christianity was, you know, the mm-hmm. religion that should be persecuted and suddenly they're advocating for it. It's like there's this whole genre of people who used to be atheists who are mm-hmm. now Christian and mm-hmm. then the sort of counter genre of people who used to be Christian who are now atheists. Yes. yes. And yeah. the respective groups love them because they're like, oh, you used to be the opposite of me and now you... Now you're no, one of I, me. Yes, I, I totally hear that. And I do think that's a compelling narrative. But the, it says, bring my name before Gentiles. I mean, the Gentiles to start with would not have been followers of Jesus. Like that's, right? Because it's, you're right, it's not. So it's, I, I in, as a Pharisee, used to think God had no real interest in Gentiles. Mm-hmm. And now that I have been converted to a Christ follower, I think God has a primary interest in Gentiles. It's kind of a compelling narrative if you're a Gentile who thinks God is important, right? Mm-hmm. But it's not clear that that they really, you know, like they've got their other religions that they're following. So right. that I mean, that's an interesting question. Yeah. Like I used to think you were outside the fold, and now I see that the fold includes you. Is there anything you think we can pull from, I keep going back to your observation earlier in our conversation that he is a little bit, he is a zealot and he's also a little bit, you know, outside the center maybe of, of Jewish life, at least of, of Israel-centered Jewish life. Yeah. Do you think there's anything in there that would make him a particularly good or powerful messenger to Gentiles? and kings and the people of Israel. Yeah, I mean, so Saul is from Tarsus, which is a fairly major city in Asia Minor and what is modern-day Turkey. It's a very Roman Roman city. He's a Roman mm-hmm. citizen. 
so I think that he as a as a he as a as a diaspora Jew is an interesting connection point for diaspora Gentiles mm-hmm. because he kind of can talk their talk and walk their walk. Mm-hmm. 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 So this sort of hybrid character, he's a he's a Roman's Roman and also a Jew's Jew, who now is a follower of Jesus. Like I think that gives him an interesting kind of perspective. Yeah, that is interesting. And it's, and I, you know, I don't know if this was really his experience, whether he felt like a Roman's Roman and a Jew's Jew or felt a little bit like a Roman to the Jews and a Jew to the Romans. I think that's probably right. But, but be, but having a foot in both of those worlds, maybe, yeah, I could see how that would equip him to be a powerful messenger to both. Yeah. And now he's able to say those two identities, which have seemed intention to me in this new Jesus way are now no longer intention. The God yeah. I always worshipped now is embracing of this Gentile identity. I like that. I think there is something about his hybridity that's re- that's really important in here for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The last thing that's here is I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Oh my God, it's so scary. It sounds like a punishment. It does. Is it? I think, like... I think one can certainly read it that way. And when, when you're talking to Ananias and you're saying, look, Ananias is saying, this guy's been like killing my friends. Yeah. And now you want him to be the ambassador for the way. Mm-hmm. And God's saying, I'm going to show him how much he has to suffer. Like, I think you can absolutely read that as, God, as Jesus saying to Ananias, like, he's going to get, like, he's not getting off scot-free. He's going to have to pay for what he did. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure I love that reading of it, but I think it is definitely available. What I prefer to think is Saul has been trying to spread his religious beliefs through violence and the application Mm -hmm. or manipulation of religious authority. And in this new thing he's about to do, it's going to be exactly his suffering, which is going to be the thing that spreads the gospel which reminds me of a lot of the conversations we've been having about Jesus through John's mm-hmm. gospel for the last few weeks is it's exactly his sort of submission to this, to the violence enacted by political and religious authority that demonstrates something about the nature of God. Yeah. I don't, I don't necessarily love suffering theology. Like I think it opens up, especially for people who already suffer. I mean, yeah. it opens up a lot of like, Let's valorize our suffering. So I don't know what to do with that dynamic of it. But I think when you're talking about Saul, who is exercising power to spread his views, and now he's realizing that it's not power, it's actually submission. I think there's something in there that's valuable to to some of us anyway. What do you do? with? Do you do anything with any of that? I'm thinking back to that scene in the Gospel of John where... Who was it? Peter who cuts off the guy's ear? Yeah. Yeah. Where where Peter is is ready to face danger from a posture of retaliation. But once retaliation is sort of taken off the table, even if it could have led to him be I don't think it was that he was afraid of being hurt in the first place, but it was just, yeah. you know, to to not not be able uh-huh. to respond to violence with violence it's like it it like bounces off his brain for a while like it it just is not he can't 
live in that sort of worldview. Yeah. So I guess I'm I'm wondering if there's if there's some pathway down there. Mm-hmm. It's a little hard for me not to read it as a. I can't, it can't be. It sounds like retaliation. Like I'll yeah. show Paul. Like he was yeah. so violent. You know, he persecuted me. So now I'll show him suffering. But it can't be that. That doesn't make. It doesn't make sense. Like it doesn't. It doesn't fit with the rest of the messages that we've gotten about what all should be happening here. So it can't be that. I agree with you there. That it, the text is open to that. But I. I mean, the sort of leads us. That's one way that it leads us to interpret. But I do think that. The, te- the text as a whole and the tradition sort of steers yeah. us away. I think that's right. Toward this thing about retaliation, persecution, exercise of violence is yeah. not the way that conversion, proper conversion happens. Yeah. Proper spreading of the gospel happens. Yeah. Which I think goes all the way back in some sense to the Elijah story mm-hmm. where Elijah is relieved of his, um, it's not exactly relieved of his prophetic call, but his, it definitely shifts after he executes all those, all those folks. Yeah. So then in verse 17, we bring our two characters together. Ananias went to the house. He placed his hands on Saul and said, Brother Saul, the Lord sent me, Jesus, who appeared to you on the way as you were coming here. He sent me so that you could see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Instantly, flakes fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. After eating, he regained his strength. Mm. I'm just struck by the way Ananias, who had just been objecting to Saul as the sort of carrier of the gospel, addresses him as Brother Saul and then explains mm. to him like what's happening. Do you make anything of that way that Ananias approaches Saul? That's just such a beautiful observation. I mean, it really seems like you know, Ananias responded earnestly to God's instruction. And when God said, nope, this is a guy I've chosen, he he just puts all that down and says, like, okay, yeah. I guess we're brothers. You know, yeah. I guess I guess this is how it is. That's hard to do. Yeah, very hard. Like that yeah. that is a I almost feel like that's a a greater sort of act of faith than putting yourself in harm's way, however you yeah. imagine you might just by being in his presence. But if we take this as being like authentic and not just, you know, so putting on a friendly tone because you're supposed to. Yeah. That's quite an act of faith. I love that, Amy. You know, usually when this story is read, or the hero of the story is Saul. You know, this is a story of Saul's calling or maybe Saul's conversion, depending on how, how you read it. But I really think where you're pointing is exactly right, that Ananias in some ways has done the harder thing here and is the hero of this part of the story anyway. Yeah. By addressing Paul as a, Paul who was just going to come to Damascus and kill him and now is addressing him as a brother. I love that. You know, in the, in the Jewish calendar we're reading in Leviticus right now, and there's a lot of stuff that's hard to relate to. But one thing I keep noticing is you know, when there are these situations that have people sort of pushed outside the camp, usually related to some kind of something going on with their body <laughs> yeah. um, that is understood to be contagious. And the rituals that are described are not to heal them of whatever's going on with their body. Like that goes on on its own. And the text doesn't say how that happens. But there are these 
moments of sort of reintegrating. The rituals are all about reintegrating back into the community and, you know, figuring out how that's going to, how that's going to happen after there has been this breach. And this isn't really like reintegrating, I guess, because he hasn't been in the community of Jesus followers, but to have this moment that he's invited in, it's pretty, pretty magnanimous. Yes. Yeah. So the things that Ananias does then is, so he says, the Lord sent me so you can see and be filled with the spirit. And then the flakes fall from the eyes and he can see again. Like there's a lot of, I mean, I think it's related to exactly what you're talking about with the, you know, that sort of flakes falling from the eyes sounds like a purification. And then there's the reintegration Mm. and all of these kinds of things. But do you make anything of that imagery of the flakes and the restoration of sight and the presence of the spirit? Like there's a lot kind of going on in that one little interaction. I love, I hadn't thought of that sort of direct connection to the stuff that goes on with bodies in Leviticus. But yeah, something, it says in in my text, something like scales fell from his eyes. And then he's bathed, basically, which is exactly what what would happen in Leviticus. That's right. I think, you know, when I first read this, I had almost like an image of a cocoon in my head. Like he has this huge, stunning, overwhelming experience. And it's like he goes into system shutdown and is, is really closed up and it sounds like maybe like literally closed off <laughs> yeah, with scales or something yeah. like scales. And then this, it feels like a, like a rebirth, you know, to, to have them fall and then to be bathed and then to have a snack and then to regain strength. You know, it's <laughs> yeah. like, it's, yeah, it's, it's very birth-like imagery. I love that, Amy. And you know, one of the ways that Paul in his letters talks about baptism is exactly rebirth that the baptism is death and the reemergence is like reemerging into a new life. It's like participating in Jesus's crucifixion and resurrection. And so that come, but it, and it is also a purification act, which draws on the tradition of Leviticus that you're talking about. And mm-hmm. so the combining of these kind of ideas of purification, death and rebirth, you know, washing and becoming new. We've seen a lot of language about living water and the water of life in our reading of John, which I don't know if Luke has that in mind or not, but that water imagery is kind of available there. And it's somehow it's the transmission of the Holy Spirit. And it's, it's not entirely clear in what way. Ananias says, the Lord sent me so you could be filled with the Holy Spirit. And we don't know if he lays hands on him or does. I don't, I don't know how the Holy Spirit gets yeah. there, but somehow in this baptism process, the Holy Spirit comes on on Saul and inspirits him in the way that we saw Jesus breathing the spirit into the disciples in last week's text. Yeah. So the image that we have then at the end of this text is Saul, who was a persecutor of followers of Jesus has been, I mean, he has lost his old life and he has been in sort of a metaphorical tomb or cocoon. I like, I love that image for three days, and now he's been rebirthed through the waters of baptism. And then the rest of the book of Acts is going to talk about how he goes on to, to become the great spreader of the gospel to the Gentiles. Mm. When you read this text and you're thinking about what kind of connections might we make to our lives today, what's coming to your mind? You know, this is not where I thought I would land, but 
I'm, just, I'm really drawn to your observations about sort of hybridity mm. and the complexity of all of our identities. And I think especially when there's some sense of sort of like a, a group that you want to be part of and maybe some myth of group purity that you, you only, you know, once you're in, you only have one identity. Like once you're a Jew, you're only a Jew and it doesn't matter what other <laughs> identities yeah. you have. Or once you're a Christian, it doesn't matter what else your background is. Um, I know in my community right now, my, the broader Jewish community, there's, there's a lot of conversation about the fact that, that that doesn't really fly so well in the modern world anymore. I'm not sure it ever really did, but more and more there's a realization that people carry multiple identities. And if we don't not just tolerate that, but allow that to be their strength and a way, you know, to ex- enrich our community and truly like welcome it and invite it, it is, it is to our detriment, you know, yeah. and that they will, they will go off and find a community. You, you can't shut that down. You can't shut yeah. down the hybridity, the multiple identities. People will find a different place to be, and they, and they can, and they maybe should. Yeah. So that's a little, uh, there's a, a word in Hebrew, tochacha, like a little, like a rebuke, like a, a rebuke to my, to my own community and also to other communities that is, well-meaning and for, for everyone's best interest. But I think this text is, is reminding me that we'd best not marginalize people who, who bring multiple identities to the table. I love that, Amy, the sort of embracing of the whole person and identities that are multiple and complex. I think that's such a beautiful invitation from this text for, for all of us. My reading, I think, is somewhat similar, but I I got there through a different opening, which is this conversation about violence, retribution, Mm -hmm. reconciliation. Mm -hmm. This text is often talked about as the conversion of Saul, by which people often mean Saul was a Jew at the beginning of this text, and he's a Christian at the end of this text, which I think is the wrong way of reading. And I think Saul was a Jew at the beginning of this text, and he's a Jew at the end of this text, but he's now a Jew who has incorporated Jesus into his way of being Jewish, which I realize is in a sense conversion, but I don't think he thinks of himself as stopping one way of being religious Mm -hmm. and starting a new one. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's sort of a transition within the same framework for him. So then the question is, well, what did he convert to or from? And I mean, one way of getting at that is to say this is a call story, but I really, I'm drawn to the language of conversion and what, what I think I'm, where I think I'm coming is that this is a story about conversion of Saul from somebody who spreads his beliefs through wielding power and threats of death to someone who spreads his belief by offering himself to the world, to people, as an invitation to experience the openness that is possible in the God of the Bible. So it's a conversion from power and violence to mm-hmm. invitation and openness. Mm-hmm. Once, once you start thinking about it that way, then it becomes, I think, clear that it's, this is also a story about the conversion of Ananias, whose first response is, this guy who used to persecute me, there's no way that's the right guy. And yet he is able 
to listen when God says, no, trust me, this is the right guy. And in the next verse, he's calling him brother Paul or brother Saul. And so he converts from this sense of like, I want retribution against you or I'm never going to, I'm never going to have a space for someone who used to be threatening to me to like, okay, well, if God is drawing us together, then we can all be in this, in this thing together. So I think there's something there about the converting from ways of violence and and ways of retribution Mm -hmm. to openness to the other, which I think in the reading it as a Christian is both an invitation that we could be like that. And there is an openness to the gospel that is very much possible. And that at points in our history and in different communities, we have embraced. And there is also a rebuke of the use of civil and religious authority and power and violence as a way of spreading religion, which we have also done very often in our history and even still today. So in my mind, this text sort of for Christian communities today is laying out those options and saying this way of using power is not the way, this way of letting go of violence and retribution is a way of openness, to, as you were saying, to the whole self mm. and the hybridities of, of people. It, that's the way. That's the way of Jesus. I love that. And I love that it pulls together this idea of, you know, openness to, you know, people with, I shouldn't say, I don't know, openness to sort of expanding your idea of belief systems, valid belief systems, and how you interact with people who hold them. And also openness to people, you know, who have a past that makes you, you know, like openness to like starting over now, you know, what moving forward now, it's a hard thing to do. I think that's right. That is right. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right, Amy, so next week we're going to continue on with the story of Saul, who we're going to be calling Paul, I guess, by next week. Uh, (laughs) In Acts chapter 16, 16 to 40, the story of Paul and some of his companions being thrown in prison. Mm, (laughs) Sounds dramatic. It does. (laughs) I look forward to it. Nice talking with you, Bobby. You too. I'll see you next time. Bye. joining us for this week's episode of Bible Worm. If you've enjoyed this free podcast, we hope you'll help us keep it going by joining our Patreon for as little as $4 per month. You can also sign up for other goodies like early access, video lectures, weekly liturgies, and more. Visit patreon.com slash Podcast for details. Bible Worm is produced by Bobby Williamson and edited by Joel and Laura Becker. Our theme song is sung by Colin Bagby. We are grateful to our many supporters for helping us keep the podcast going. A special thank you to our executive producer, Fox Valley Presbyterian Church in Geneva, Illinois. Join us next time when we'll be discussing Paul and Silas' journey to Philippi in Acts 16, 16 16-40. Until then, keep on digging.